Welcome back to this special edition of Rule Breaker Investing. It's my weekend extra. It's the full interview I did with Richard Garfield, game designer extraordinaire, and I think it's fair to say my newest bestie. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. So, Richard Garfield, we presented a portion of that interview earlier this week on Rule Breaker Investing when I did my 2018 holiday games list as well. But I wanted to make sure, especially for big Garfield fans, that I got to share my entire conversation with you. So, if you're listening to me right now, you're probably here for one of two reasons. The first is that you're just addicted to this podcast. You have to listen to everyone. You're a completionist in, in, in podcasts as well as in life, and you just you feel compelled to listen. But the second reason that I bet many of you are here is that you love games. You're fascinated by Richard Garfield and what he's done, his design of Magic the Gathering, his constant innovation, and he's a charming guy as well. So, either reason is a great reason to be listening. And without further ado, let me now represent the full interview with Richard Garfield. If you did hear me earlier this week, you're going to hear some familiar parts because we included those, but this features the full conversation. Richard Garfield is one of the world's best and best known game designers. For his first big game, Magic the Gathering, he was granted the patent on trading card games, which is now a multi-billion dollar industry worldwide. And Since that time, Richard has produced many award-winning trading card games and board games, including Netrunner, Robo Rally, What Were You Thinking, Filthy Rich, and most recently, Keyforge. In the realm of computer gaming, he's been a game designer and consultant for Electronic Arts and Microsoft, and I'm going to want to ask him about Artifact, which is coming out on Steam 2 this Fall. Anyway, Richard, it's great to have you as a rule breaker joining me on Rule Breaker Investing. Uh, thank you. It's good to be here. So, almost all of us grew up playing games of some kind, be it chess or Pictionary or Cribbage. Richard, what kinds of games did you most appreciate as a kid? I played a lot of different games growing up. Uh, I didn't really become a gamer until I discovered Dungeons and Dragons uh, at about 13. Uh, and that basically uh, blew up my brain. Uh, I, I, I felt like it was so orthogonal to everything I knew about games that that this world of games must be much bigger than I realized. And uh, I took it upon myself to learn as much as I could about all the different games out there. So, as a fellow D&D guy myself, and I first bought my original boxed set at Sullivan's Toy Store in Washington, D.C., but I'm just a few years younger than you are, Richard, but I was the guy teaching D&D to all my friends. What was it about Dungeons & Dragons that was such a hook for you and presumably for me, too? Well, uh, the open-ended nature of Dungeons & Dragons really spoke to me, and the fact that uh, uh, there was no winner, that it was uh, about a... Uh, story that you were creating, um, which related to the game in this way, which no other uh, no other game experience I had did, and and uh, I felt like uh, there w- that, that within that type of game you could have anything. Uh, I mean, you literally could, since you can play <laughs> games within Dungeons and Dragons, so it contains all the other games, uh, but uh, but. Uh, it it broke fundamental rules about what I saw in games, like for instance that they're finite and that they have a winner. Uh, those are two big ones. Excellent. And thinking back to that time in Dungeons and Dragons, I think especially 
for me, I was very rules-focused. I'm curious like what your attitude was as you played the game. For me, I knew I had my monster manual, I had my uh, various D&D guides, and, and I was trying to memorize the rules and learn the elaborate scaffolding that was set up if you wanted to do that as a player like me. But in retrospect now as an adult, I look back and I see some of the best role players and they're barely even consulting anything, let alone a rule book. And it's a very active, almost storytelling nature where the, the role players are just saying what they're doing and the dungeon master, which is usually what I was, is reacting and maybe tossing a die now and then, but it's very less rules focused. How were you playing D&D? I was uh, definitely more on the rule side, uh, but as I uh, aged, I moved more onto the uh, role playing side. Uh, I was very interested in the systems which the game was built on, as you said, the rules scaffolding. And uh, um, I, I like to play with those tools and see how they affected how the game felt. And in fact, uh, I, I credit uh, Dungeons and Dragons for really starting me on my game designer path because everybody who plays Dungeons and Dragons is a game designer in some sense, whether you're a player or, the, but especially the person running the game. Um, and it's very natural to jump from that to tweaking rules in any game you see and sort of and seeing where that takes you. Absolutely. And before we leave Dungeons and Dragons, I just want to nerd out slightly longer. Richard, were you typically the dungeon master or were you a player? And if you were a player, did you have a favorite character and would you name that character for us? <laughs> uh, I was almost always the dungeon master. Um, I, I did have a thief named Umbra, though. Ah, Latin for shadow. Uh, yeah. I've uh, kept, kept that as a, uh, a online handle uh, for, for many of my games as well. Spectacular. Before we move to some more of your adult years, uh, maybe a little bit more about your childhood, anything you'd like to tell us. But I'm curious maybe if there was a lesson or two that you learned back then that, that still sticks with you today. My reaction to Dungeons & Dragons I don't think was entirely typical. Most people, when they uh, discover a game they like, they really get into that game. And uh, I did get into Dungeons & Dragons, but it much more took me into what other games are there. And um, that led me to getting a lot of games which I wouldn't have other otherwise tried. And because of my limited budget, uh, I really had to make use of those games. Uh, I, it was, it, I, I didn't have the luxury of getting them and saying, oh, I, I don't like this. So uh. I really picked up this uh, skill of learning to see what makes these games fun. And, uh, and that, that's carried me throughout my entire game career. I really enjoy finding games uh, which uh, take a while to, to appreciate. And that's especially true from ga for games from other cultures or from hi historically, uh, because we're not in a world which, whatever, plays a lot of whist. And so, <laughs> so but whist is an amazing game uh, if you sort of, if you play it enough to get what it's about. And that's m more work than most people are willing to do. It's not entirely like reading a book in a language you're not really familiar with, but it feels a bit like that. Uh, it's, it's very difficult uh, learning 
games in general, but learning games uh, outside of your comfort zone is it's 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 quite a challenge and it's a skill uh, which you can build up. Love it. You know, I, I think of Whist, which I think is a precursor to Contract Bridge, but um, maybe this stuff more of Edith Wharton novels these days. And so I have to admit, I never, even though I've tried to learn as many games as I can, I've never really gone back to see what a precursor to Contract Bridge looks like. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. Uh, uh, there's there's a, there's a lot of really interesting games out there, and, and uh, games have really uh, a peculiar cultural relevance in that. I think they're very, uh, historically, I think they're very important to cultures, but they're very poorly uh, documented. Um, You know, back in the 1700s, they played lots of games, but you can't find a lot of written rules or anything like that. You can hear talk, hear see a lot of references of people playing games all night, but you don't know exactly what they were doing. and, uh, and, And you get the sense that there was a lot more going on. And it's because... Uh, yeah, again, uh, games were important, but yet not uh, documented well. I'm really glad you're mentioning that because I did not know that. And my assumption has always been that the gaming renaissance, well, the gaming golden age that we're living in isn't really a renaissance because there wasn't anything to be reborn. I look back over history. I mean, we all know that Go is the fantastic thousands of years old game, I think, from China. Uh, we all imagine that chess showed up somewhere in, I don't know, the year 1200. I've When I went to Iceland, I saw a game board from the Vikings that was a game I didn't recognize. And I was like, well, they were gaming back then. But most of us in America, anyway, we think that, you know, Monopoly was invented somewhere in the 1930s. And that was like maybe the first kind of American game. And it took four more years before part cheesy came out or something like that. It really hasn't felt like it was until maybe the last 30 years that now thousands of games are coming out every year. Yeah, there's there's two senses, I think, in which uh, it's a, a, a gaming renaissance, a really special time in games. The first is uh, there is this sense that, that games are more of a pastime now than they were. And I think I have no evidence for this, but I think that's true for my childhood. But it's not necessarily true for my grandparents' childhood. You know, I, uh, in talking to uh, my my elders, uh, they played a lot of. They had poker parties and bridge parties, and they played mahjong. And uh, th- there were lots of uh, organized game events which they did. Um, and uh, when I was growing up, that just wasn't as much uh, a thing. I think, it, I, again, I'm, I'm not sure about this. I don't have any documented evidence, but I think television might have had something to do with it. It's just the entertainment attitude changed. Uh, and that's my impression. Uh, but the second set of thing is that, that historically people played much fewer games. It's a, I think it's a really new thing that you consider yourself a game player rather than I play bridge <laughs> or I play poker. Um, and, uh, and I'll, I'll learn a new game this weekend. I think that happened in the past, but much less than it happens today. And if that is true, and it sounds like it is, that's the world I want to live in. I'm glad we're living right now. And, and you're, you're partly making that world happen for us by constantly innovating. And before we move to your games, Richard, uh, Wikipedia is true often. I hope it's true in this case, but are you in fact the great, great grandson of President James Garfield? Uh, I am. That is true. Wow. So when you talked about your elders earlier, we know at least one of them. But then Wikipedia also says that your granduncle invented the paperclip. Is that also true? 
Uh, that is true, I think. Um, I'm, I, I'm not. I'm not sure how much of that is family lore. He had a lot of patents, uh, so he definitely invented uh, something which clipped paper. And I don't know whether it's the paperclip or you know some form of the paperclip. He also had the uh, uh, milk carton, the one that uh, uh, you open up the top and it pops out and becomes a spout. I believe yeah. that was him. Wow. That was that's a big one, <laughs> and, and then a, a lot of uh, valves and things like that. All right. So, well, it sounds like you come from a family of genius, and as I mentioned um, earlier, it's the innovations that I've seen in your games that jump out to me. And as somebody who looks for innovation uh, in American business and world business, and always looking for who's innovating, because that's so often the value creators that we, where we want to own those stocks and own them for a long period of time. Innovation usually doesn't happen. By accident, there are the occasional eureka moments that we hear about in history. But Richard, I'm pretty sure that the way that you've innovated, let's start with magic, if you will, or you could start with Robo Rally, if you like. I'd love to hear kind of the story of how you invent a game, the creative process that leads to something like Magic: The Gathering. Uh, a lot of my design is intuitive. Uh, with Magic, for example, uh, I. Magic is is exceptional in that I did actually have a eureka moment with magic, and that was this aha where I realized not all players had to have the same cards. Mm. And that was uh, a really exciting moment for me when I I thought about the possibilities of uh, people basically designing their half of the game. So it was, uh, I love to tweak games and play with the rules and see what happens. And in some ways, I (laughs) feel like this was sharing what I liked about that with people because they could construct their gameplay experience. Um, And uh, it was very democratic because they got half of it, Uh, got to (laughs) lay down half the rules. Uh, But uh, a lot of the details of the design, uh, I, I came upon... Uh, intuitively, and it was only later that I sort of was able to trace the roots uh, to other games I was working on and other games I played. Uh, So my process involves actually a lot of play of different games, and this uh, passion for learning games outside my comfort zone, I really think ties into that. You know, I read a book once called The Medici Effect. I'm pretty sure you know about this book. It's by Franz Johansson. And it's just about how you take, well, let's go back to medieval Florence, early Renaissance. You have people who are artists and people who are traders, and they're all congregating in this place. And they're from the Far East and the West, and they're bouncing new ideas and possibilities off of each other. And that's such a rich, fertile ground for innovation. And Johansson then spends a chapter of his book telling the story of you and you inventing Magic the Gathering. And could you remind us of that aha moment? What what was what was that eureka moment when all of a sudden you realized, hey, the deck of cards that I'm playing with could be different from the deck of cards being played by my opponent? Uh, well, specifically, I remember I was uh, uh, I remember I was uh, hiking at Multnomah Falls when this hit me, and uh, it came out of the, out of the blue. Uh, mm. Later, later, I actually uh, did trace its roots possibly to some other places. My friends were playing uh, Stratomatic baseball, for example. <laughs> and Stratomatic baseball involves players drafting uh, 
baseball players, which are on cards, and uh, and then playing out seasons. And uh, I really like the idea of that game, uh, but I wasn't that interested in baseball, so I never never participated. I just sort of watched. Um, and then and then I'd seen uh, all these really interesting trading cards at the game stores, uh, and felt like they were beautiful, but they were kind of pointless. And, uh, so, so there were a bunch of things sort of, uh, <laughs> bubbling in the back of my head that I think might've influenced this. This is incredible, Richard, because a lot of my youth was spent playing hours and hours of Stratomatic Baseball and Dungeons and Dragons. And I, there are many differences between you and me, but one of them is that you bring more math understanding. So this is why you've ended up being the amazing game designer that you are. Most of us are just playing your games, but could you describe a little bit of your life in mathematics? Because I'm pretty sure you got a degree or an advanced degree at University of Pennsylvania. So you're mixing math into some of this creativity, and I'd love to tease a little bit of that, that out of you. Uh, yeah, I, I, I did. I got a PhD in combinatorics at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and the relationship between math and games is kind of subtle. Uh, the people have asked me whether it's important to understand math to be a game designer, and uh, I think it's helpful, uh, but usually the level you need is what you can pick up on the street playing poker or something. Uh, but uh, it's useful in, in a, the same way that anything is useful, you can make a game around it. Uh, you might think of uh, like a writer, a, a writer is history useful to a writer? Well, yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, is uh, is uh, economics interest useful to a writer? Yeah, they can write about that too. Um, and it's the same thing for games. It's just a, it's a good uh, um, uh, source for inspiration. But uh, math, in particular, I, I think my why I was going into math is because I loved games so much, and there's in uh, so much of the underlying uh, interest I have in games is these systems underneath, and that is mathematical and combinatorics yes. is actually one of the uh, one of the most relevant areas uh, for for the math of games. And I, I I would love just a little bit more on that because um, when I was first reading about Magic the Gathering twenty some years ago and I read that you were an expert and a specialist in combinatorics I'm an English major myself, so I don't have any background in it other than I think something like if I'm attacking with a creature that has three attack and you're blocking with a creature that has either two block or maybe a different one that has one block but it's some sort of a special ability, you're choosing between the two or the one. You're, you're, you're making a decision about uh, the numbers of it, and the numbers are often small and they're sequenced in some way. Or could you just give me like the two sentence explanation of what combinatorics is? Uh, sure. Uh, combinatorics is basic, it's the math of counting things. Um, hmm. And there's three major areas for combinatorics uh, uh, graph theory, which is the study of things like uh, networks. Uh, um, Enumeration, which is very much counting things, so that's often counting like uh, the number of different uh, types of poker hands you can get. For instance, as a combinatorial uh-huh. question, as an, enumera- an enumeration question within combinatorics, and then the third area, which is also very relevant, is algorithms. So the study of algorithms, the mathematical side of algorithms, is combinatorics as well. Excellent. 
Okay, now I, I understand some more because I do know some of those words. But so it's it's spectacular the way that you combined a love of games that just hit you in your youth with the math that let you see the underlying systems to then design games that millions of people are enjoying today. Uh, Richard, I'm curious. Um, I I think of it. I think this is a fair statement. There are many games that I don't think would exist today without Magic: The Gathering, which I think you brought to the world in 1993. Uh, it was published in 93. Yes. Okay, so 25 years ago, and maybe in the same way that much of what fantasy fans take for granted today wouldn't exist without the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, I think that's true of what you've done with Magic the Gathering and collectible card games. So, in particular, I just wanted to ask you, what are some of the other games that have been spawned by Magic, maybe in some cases by other designers that you admire or that you think have been additive? Oh, uh, there's been... It's... It's often presumptuous to assume your design influenced people. Uh, I, I, I feel like I can't, uh, that there, there are many games which I believe were influenced by mm -hmm. magic, but mm -hmm. you know, I'm never really sure. Um, and, uh, but, uh, there's some that are, are very close to magic, uh, like Hearthstone, uh, for example, which, uh, is sort of clearly inspired. They, say it's inspired and uh and it certainly brings new stuff to the table uh and uh um but then there's ones that are much more subtle like uh like uh, uh i believe uh dominion for example is yes. it, it is is it was influenced by uh magic i, I know the designer i know it was very uh uh passionate about uh the magic and the systems it created uh but uh, it's certainly further away than uh, than Hearthstone, and then things get even further. You have like uh, drafting games became very popular. And you can say, well, yes. you know, Magic yes. has drafting, so uh, it might have influenced those. Uh, the, um, it's 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 it, the the net the the tendrils from design gets uh, get harder to track down. Uh, I understand, and it's so it's it's it's. It's, it's, it is kind of interesting. It's been infused into a lot of areas. It, is, it, it reflects uh, how I view games. There are a lot of game designers uh, uh, that that actually don't play other games because they don't want to be uh, they don't want their designs uh, contaminated by them. Yes, that's what and, Reiner Knizia, for example, has said to me. Yeah, and I'm I, I am very very different than that uh because i believe games are more of a cultural uh achievement and people designing cultural achievements in a vacuum just so that they can be the impressive uh contributor uh is is putting the emphasis on the designer and not on the achievement so mm -hmm. so for me i feel like uh, i'm proud to make games that use other people's uh, work as as influence, and yes. I will be happy to credit those because I do think I'm always bringing something new to the table. And when people borrow from me, uh, whether it's uh, Hearthstone or or you know something else, it I feel like they're creating something well new as well, and I appreciate being recognized. But but that's we're all standing on each other's shoulders, and it's a community effort. And I appreciate that. That reference, and that's really eloquently and aptly put. And thank you, Richard. I want to ask you about your two newest games and just maybe get a little from you on each of them. One of them is a card game, and um, I'm getting it 
Two-day ship by Amazon, finally, or maybe Cool Stuff, Inc. Whatever it is, I finally get my copy of Keyforge. I'm looking forward to playing that uh, later this week. So, I want to ask you about Keyforge. And then, earlier, I also mentioned Artifact, which is a game that's coming out as a digital card game, I think. Maybe a Magic-like experience, but updated for 2018. Let's start first with Keyforge. And, Richard, what jumps out to me with that new design of yours is that you're doing it once again, there he goes again. This time, the innovation is that every deck that anybody buys of Keyforge is unique. It has its own card back. It has its own unique, procedurally generated name. And apparently, it's going to work well enough that you could play that deck against anybody else who has their own Keyforge deck. But every single one of maybe millions of decks of cards of Keyforge is unique. That is correct. Uh, yeah, I'm really excited by this concept and very uh, uh, excited to see it actually out there and people playing it. It's been something that's been uh, rattling around my head for about ten years, but it's a uh, mm. um, it's it's only in the last few years that I have felt like printing technology is such that it could actually be made. Uh, Certainly, uh, ten it might have been fifteen years ago when I first thought about it. The idea of printing uh, unique, unique card, unique decks for everybody to order uh, <laughs> was not feasible. But now it can be done, and each deck is ten dollars, which is marvelous. So I, I love that idea that you can dream something up. The technology isn't there yet. The world then gets there, and out comes KeyForge. Um, so I think a lot of us who are early bleeding edge gamers have maybe already gone to Essen in Germany and played this game. But for the rest of us who are waiting for it and maybe going to give it to somebody else underneath a tree in in a few weeks, Richard, what? excites you most about Keyforge as a gamer and a game player? What's fun about the game for you? I, I'm really excited by this concept that, uh, that you never, that, that, that what you have is unique, that uh, you can't look on a website and read what the expert, how the experts say you ought to be playing which is mm. true for almost any game people play seriously, you know, whether it's uh, StarCraft or, or Magic. You know, Magic, they'll have the formulas for the decks you should be using, and, uh, and you have to go track down those cards and, uh, and, then, uh, and then play in a particular way. And it's not actually the case, but uh, the hierarchy of the players is such that, that's, uh, that that is what a lot of people uh, believe. Um, with... Keyforge, you your deck is your own, and you have to make this relationship with it in order to uh, play it as well as can be. You have to make the use of what tools you have, and that's that's a, a very exciting proposition to me. Um, and I'll, I'll say uh, one thing that I, I think that is really interesting about this is that uh, when it was play being play tested. Uh, it was actually uh, almost a, a matter of faith that it was going to find an audience because it was really difficult to find people who were uh, into the playtest because all the people who are into playtests for a game mm -hmm. like this would be uh, would be mostly, say, advocates of trading card games. And this is very much against what 
trading right. card games are about. And so they look at it and they say, why would I be interested in a game where I can't make my own deck? That's just like taking something I love and taking away something I, uh, uh, taking away the core <laughs> of it. And, and so you had a lot of people sort of uh, hitting it and just not really getting it. And, and uh, the faith part of this was that uh, I believed that there were a lot of people who liked trading card games, but really just the, tr the, the part about building your decks and chasing the cards was too much work. And the sense of uniqueness of the deck you had as they joined the larger community disappeared because the collections became more homogenous. Right. And, and so this was trying to recapture what the people who loved this sort of game uh, experienced, but uh, didn't get caught up in this, this other thing, which, uh, which trading Building card games killer are killer decks. About. Yeah. And, and uh, I, I always, you know, mention that it's, it's not that I hate, deck building i i think deck building is wonderful and it's been it's fascinating to watch it's just it's very uh technically challenging and is not something i always want to be involved with mm -hmm. uh in fact as i grow older i want to be involved with less and less i really like picking up an interesting deck and playing it and that's what this is about and that's what I'm ex so excited about as well. I'm the person who does play a lot of Hearthstone, but I intentionally don't ever look at anybody's deck list, which probably puts me in a tiny minority. But I like, I just like the mentality of playing what you're dealt. And in a world where people can just go on the internet and just kind of copy and paste the best practices that the world has has dreamed up, that that isn't the kind of creativity that I look for. And so that's why I'm excited about Keyforge, because I know I'm going to be playing my own deck and I'm going to figure out the best way to play it. But I believe, Richard, you invoked the phrase, welcome to the jungle, when you described your design. And before we move to Artifact, can you just explain to my listeners what you meant by welcome to the jungle? Uh, yeah, the welcome to the jungle is um, it's a reference to how I view... Uh, games which are very random uh, or sort of wild. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of movement in games, especially in like computer games, where they try to micromanage everybody's time. They have a very specific idea about how the game should be played, and they try to give the best experience possible, which is mm. terrific. Uh, but uh, it always feels uh, exciting. So, so when I play a, like a role-playing game, uh, a computer role-playing game, I feel like I'm an amusement park because they've crafted all the areas, what all the people say, sort of uh, the, the, the general way the combat's going to go and everything like that. But you go play a game like uh, like Minecraft or uh, uh, Dwarf Fortress or old rogue games, it mm -hmm. feels much crazier and it feels like you run into these situations which the designers didn't, uh, didn't anticipate. Mm. And in some ways, I uh, just like to view game designers as putting to, at their best. They're putting together a uh, a world which people can can exceed the game designer. If you if you can only match the game designer, it's more like creating a puzzle. Like when I you know make a crossword puzzle, uh, uh, in some ways people can only catch up to me. But when yeah, I you're make quizzing me, yeah, and but when I make magic, it's like I was very quickly not the best magic player in the world, um, and uh, and and so this this uh, idea that the game is bigger than the designer is something uh, 
which which is appealing to me, and uh, it feels less like exploring an amusement park and more like going out into the wilds, into the jungle. Mm, thank you. I understand. All right, and then Artifact. Artifact, I've read a little bit about it. I saw uh, a very popular Hearthstone esports streamer say he's retiring from Hearthstone because the best game he knows of now is Artifact. And Richard, I'm pretty sure you're behind this one. It debuts on Steam this month. What is Artifact? Uh, so Artifact is a game, of, it's a trading card game designed for online play. Ever since I made Magic, I was interested in making an online version of a trading card game. Mm. Magic was uh, worked very well for paper, but it wasn't designed for online, and it's really hard to make it a good a, a good online game which is true to the paper play. Yes, um, and and so I wanted to make I've been wanting to make a game which uses all the power that you have when you play with the computer, uh, but uh, but is a trading card game. And it seemed like most trading card games were sort of going down this path, which led to a very constrained design, which were uh, uh, where they were um, taking into account limited screen space because uh, screen space is more limited than what you have on the table, for example. Um, and, uh, and what I wanted to do was get something where you could get the crazy unbounded feeling that you have with magic <laughs> Um, uh, while playing on a computer. It, it felt, felt like uh, you really should be able to do that. Uh, wow. Um, and, so, and so that's what I was aiming for, and, and hopefully that's what we got. That sounds very exciting. I haven't had a chance to try any demos yet. Is, when does it come out? Um, it comes out this month. I, I forget exactly when. Hmm. I think the beta starts this week, and, but the beta is very short. Right. Well, um, this interview is being included on my podcast where I'm going to release a list of some of my favorite games to consider for the holidays for our fellow fools. Uh, and and Keyforge will have a prominent position on this list. Um, Richard, what are some other games that you've played and enjoyed in 2018? What, what in the past few years might you recommend? Oh, wow. Uh, well, uh, Hanabi is an excellent game if you missed that uh it's a few years old but if you missed that uh you should definitely get it it's a uh my favorite cooperative game um you hold you hold a card over your head that you can't see and you try to get people to help you figure out what it is uh close you you hold your hand in front of you so you're not putting it on ah. your head like the like the poker variant but the, okay uh, yeah yeah uh um and then uh Recently, I've been uh, playing Kashgar. I think that's quite a good game. And uh, um, I've just discovered uh, War Chest, uh, which I, I like a lot. Um, so, yeah, any of that's those awesome. I think will satisfy people. I haven't played either of those. Um, in a line, what is War Chest doing? War Chest is a game which is a little bit chess-like, where each player has four unique pieces and each turn, you draw some of some of them from a bag. So you randomly get ah. to activate those pieces. So there's a, sort of a delightful amount of uh, difference between the sides. The fact that you've only got four pieces each to keep track of makes it so that it doesn't feel like it's overwhelm, overwhelmingly compl complicated. And the randomness of when you get to activate them makes it so that it doesn't feel like you're uh, just doing a spreadsheet. So uh -huh. got a great feel to it. 
Richard, when you when you sit down with people that you would think of as new gamers or non-gamers or gamers to be, do you have a favorite game or two that you might pull out just to get them hooked? Yes. Uh, I've got a, a, it depends where I'm trying to go with them though. Uh, like a sure. social, social deduction game. Uh, I will, you know, uh, do a, a game like one night werewolf and, uh, a, uh, with just getting them their feet wet with, uh, with game playing in general, I'll do uh, hive mind, which is, uh, my new version of, uh, what were you thinking? Aha. Uh-huh. I would be remiss since this is a Motley Fool podcast and it's rule breaker investing Richard, if, if I didn't ask, have you ever bought an individual stock? And do you want to say anything about Richard Garfield's approach to investing? Uh, I, I've done enough investing to know that that's not where I want to spend my time. <laughs> that's a great line on its own. <laughs> and uh, when people come up to me and ask what stock they should buy, I, I often say, especially when they're entrepreneurs, which, among other things, you are, I say, make sure you're investing in yourself, because that's probably where your greatest return lies. So, the stock market is secondary or derivative for many of us, and especially the entrepreneurs. Uh, I know that you're putting your money right where you should be. So, that that's what I think. Okay. <laughs> I, wanted, uh, I actually wanted to mention something about Keyforge to you. Uh, there's a- Awesome. There's a uh, website you can go to where you can find the names of the decks. I just uh, searched. There's so far 90,000 decks registered. I just searched for Motley. There's uh, eight decks with Motley in the title. I love it. Including Spooky Motley Drake. (laughs) And 90,000 decks registered so far. Well, a a, a few hours from now, uh, upon conclusion of this interview, I'll be adding five or six uh, in there as as well. That that's pretty spectacular. Um, last question for you, Richard. Um, are you a reader? And if so, what are you reading right now? I always like to hear what what we're exposing our minds to. Uh, I'm reading two books right now. Uh, I'm reading Infinite Jest, which has been on my uh, inbox for years, and so I'm mm. very happy to be uh, reading that. And I'm also reading a. Uh, 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 Stephen Pinker's new book, uh, Enlightenment Now. I'm a big Stephen Pinker fan. I love that book, too, so I'm, I'm delighted to know that. All right. Well, Richard, you've been so generous with your time. It's been a pleasure to get to know you for the first time via the podcast. I often love to think about the future. That's, after all, what we try to do when we pick a stock. Uh, I know you think a lot about the future, and you're pretty good at inventing the gaming future. I'm just curious, Richard, whether you have any prediction that comes to mind that you'd like to make about games or yourself or the world at large. Yeah, I I predict that uh, the effect of this gaming renaissance we talked about will uh, be more profound than it at first appears. I think I've always felt that games were the most underutilized tool in education by a long shot. Uh, and, mm. and I meant that not just as educational games, but uh, just uh, the education involved in playing almost any game. So I think this, uh, this broad spread interest in playing games and learning new games will actually have uh, really big ramifications uh, uh, for our society. 
That is spectacular. That truly brings a chill to my spine as a fellow gamer. In an earlier meeting today at The Fool, I was just talking about how we need to add more life into games and more games into life, and I vote for that. It sounds like you're probably an optimist, as I am. Anybody who's a Pinker fan probably is. So that feels really good, what you just described for us. And I'm going to make a prediction. I'm going to predict that Keyforge and Artifact will be both big successes for you here, starting at the end of 2018, but continuing, I bet, for many years. And I'm pretty sure I'll be playing both. But Richard, for um, for at this point, for me, at the age of 52, for half a lifetime of gaming uh, pleasure that you have generated for me, my family and friends, and for millions of people around the world, thank you very much for joining us on Rule Breaker Investing. Uh, thanks. It was a it was a lot of fun. And I want to thank Richard again for graciously sharing almost an hour of his time with somebody who thinks he's one of the great living game designers. I hope you enjoyed Richard as much as I did. Just a reminder, coming up next week, it's well, it's a little bit more game in this podcast because it's the Market Cap Game Show, the game show we invented. We bring it back once a quarter, and next week, this coming Wednesday, is that week. Have a great weekend. Fool on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.